Good evening, guys. It is so awesome to be here. I, just, just as I arrived, I realized this used to be like a second home to me. I was here almost every week. And I think it's, two year, it's over two years since I was here last. Can you believe it? And you're all rejoicing and going, why did the good times have to end tonight? And uh, I'm, I'm not planning on, on speaking too long because I've got to go to the police station and uh, take out a restraining order against a woman called Shirley because I've been told that this woman, Shirley, goodness and mercy are going to follow me all the days of my life. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's so bad. So bad. When, when I spoke at the youth conference, I started with a joke. And, and afterwards, people came up to me and said, what did that joke have to do with the preach? I said, nothing. It was just a, a joke. <laughs> anyway. So, I, I do want to reference those prophetic words that came. Because, you know, we can, we're told in Scripture, do not despise prophecy. And there's many ways we can despise prophecy. You know, one is we can just treat it like it's disposable. You know, if we release a word and we believe it's a word from God, then we've got to take note of it. We can't just skip it and go, oh, that was kind of, we had a gap in the worship, somebody had to fill it. If we genuinely believe it's prophecy, then, then we've got to listen to it and, and respond to it. And, and the words were about opening our hearts. And I, and I trust that we'll open our hearts to what the Lord is going to say tonight. Uh, but the one word was about the treasure in the midst of the waves. And I do believe that it's very easy as followers of Jesus Christ to take our eyes off the prize. And we're just going through the motions. We're doing church. We're doing community. We're doing worship. We're doing all the right things, but we lose sight of the prize. And we lose sight of the empowerment that God has for us to be able to do those things with life. And very often, uh, when we lose connection there, we're going through it, but it becomes, well, maybe for me, maybe you're all way more spiritual than I am, but sometimes it just becomes duty, obligation, routine, tradition, or habit, instead of something filled with power. And that's what happens when we, when we lose the prize, when we lose the treasure. And the other, and I really want to focus on this, because I, I think it's the, the, the thing that the Lord wants to do more than anything tonight is that word about uh, refreshing, recreation, restoration. Well, it was lots of rewords. What was it? Redefining even. I believe the Lord wants to redefine some of us tonight. Refresh us, recommission us, restore us. Maybe even possibly rebuke. But uh, hopefully just encourage. And I want to talk about living in the last days. You know we're in the last days, right? And by that, I don't necessarily mean Jesus is going to return tomorrow. We don't know when Jesus is going to return. Nobody does. I just know it's closer now than it's ever been before. See, I'm clever like that. And as I've said many times, somebody asked me, do you believe Jesus will return in our lifetime? And my answer is, well, he's coming for you in your lifetime. <laughs> We've only got this lifetime. 
So, however long the earth's got, you've got a few years left. Some of us less than others, perhaps. But none of us know. We are in the last days. But it was Peter who defined what the last days was. And he said, you know, when, when Pentecost came and the Holy Spirit was poured out, he said, this is what the prophet Joel was speaking at about on the last days. And so ever since then, we've been living in the last days. And there is a hallmark. There is, a, there is an identity of the people of God in the last days distinct from the former days. There is something, there is a hallmark or should be a hallmark about believers today, the people of God, as distinct from the people of the Old Testament. And it's not that God has changed, because God never changes. The God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are identical. But there's a difference in God's people. And if we look at what Peter says in Acts, we'll find out what that hallmark is, what that difference is. He says, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days, it shall... It shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. The abiding distinction between how God worked in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Some people say in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would just uh, be temporary and come upon people. But then in, in the New Testament, he, he would come you know, inside you or fill you. Well, that's not the correct distinction. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit filled people. He came upon people permanently sometimes, temporarily sometimes. But the distinction is in the Old Testament, it was a select few In the last days, all. So look around you and see if anybody in this room doesn't qualify under the term all. Your sons and daughters shall shall prophesy. There'll be no distinction between male and female in terms of how God operates through his spirit. He will pour his spirit out on male and female. Your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. That isn't some t- at some point in your life you'll stop seeing visions and start dreaming. Dreams and visions are the same thing, but it's saying whether you're young or old, there is no distinction on age. There is no junior Holy Spirit or senior Holy Spirit. On my male servants and female servants, economic status, job position, whatever your identity is, And by the way, your identity should be in Christ, not in any of those things. But whoever you are, you fall under all and the Holy Spirit wants to pour himself out into you and through you. And you shall prophesy. The hallmark of God's people in the last days is that they will be a prophetic people. Somebody asked me the other week, why do we go on about people prophesying so much? Why do we always have prophetic workshops? And why do we... And it's not that the other gifts aren't valuable. They are. Healing, administration, servant, service, all of these things, speaking in tongues, they're all important gifts. But a hallmark of the New Testament people is we should be a prophetic people. And prophetic doesn't, as many of us know, most of us know, isn't just about uttering what is still to come. But prophecy, in a nutshell, 
is to be able to communicate the heart of God to people. And if we can't do it, who can? We need to be a prophetic people, but we need to be a spirit-filled people. We need to be a people who understand that the desire of God is to fill us with his Holy Spirit. Now, I don't want to get into a big theological explanation of all the different positions on this, but it is true that the moment you get saved, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. That is true. Every believer is filled with the Holy Spirit. The gospel is not about self-improvement. It's not about becoming more moral people. You know, there's a guy went into a library, he said, can you tell me where the self-help section is? And the librarian said, I could, but wouldn't that defeat the whole purpose? (laughs) The Bible is not a self-help manual. It's not designed to make good people better or bad people good. It's about making dead people alive. And that can only come about by the power of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter how hard you try. I used to say I'm going to be the perfect Christian today. And I never made it past lunchtime. Maybe you've got more self-control than I have. But there is no way you can be the perfect person. And so all of us who are born again, that's the whole point. Born of woman and born of the Spirit. We're given life by the Holy Spirit. But then there are moments, and we see it in Acts 2, we see it in Acts 4, where there is sudden, experiential, violent outpourings of the Holy Spirit. Moments that are so tangible and so powerful that we're reading about them 2,000 years later, and they changed people forever. Now, I just want to address something about the Holy Spirit. You know, you have a meeting where the Holy Spirit comes up. We have a, good, uh, a really good meeting. And somebody somewhere will say, we will never be the same again. Anybody heard that in church? And I don't quite agree with that statement. I would say we've got the potential never to be the same again. Because I've learned never to underestimate man's capacity to go back to what he used to be. <laughs> You know, somebody once said, you know, they they were against people shaking and falling over in church saying it was all fake. And they said, and then somebody said, no, it's not fake. Sometimes it can be fake. Sometimes it's real. And the way you tell whether it's real or fake is when the person gets up, are they different? And if they're different, it must be God. If they stay the same, it must be fake. And again, I don't agree with that. I do believe if there's a genuine encounter with God, there is the potential to change in a way that you could never change. But many people encounter God and say, thanks for that. I'd rather stay as I am. True. Sad, but true. We have the choice to stay as we are, especially if we're comfortable in what we are. But God's desire by his Holy Spirit is to change us. And Ephesians 5 tells us, We've got a scripture from Ephesians about the Holy Spirit. can put that up. Okay, we've got a technical glitch. So we go the old-fashioned ways and use our Bibles. Has anybody got a Bible? Oh, saved, eh? Okay, that's the, that's the wrong one, but you can read that so long. <laughs> Maybe God, maybe God needed some of you to see that. 
But in, in chapter 5, let's start at verse uh, 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desire of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And it describes... Um, the, what it looks like to gratify the desires of the flesh and to be led by uh, the flesh. And then it talks about the fruit of the Spirit, which we'll get to now. But the writer of Ephesians is telling us, as he goes on, is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And this isn't, it doesn't say you were once filled with the Holy Spirit, or when you, it says be filled. Be filled and walk with the Spirit. In other words, have an ongoing relationship. That be filled, the tense is present continuous. In other words, be constantly filled with the Holy Spirit. And that can happen different ways. It can happen, as I said, with sudden, experiential, even violent outpourings of the Spirit where God hits you, maybe you fall over, maybe you weep, maybe you laugh, maybe you shake, maybe just something in your heart explodes, whatever it may be, and you, you, there is no denying I had an experiential encounter. But another way is a gradual, daily, imperceptible thing. Just like I am a little taller now than I was when I was born. I can't tell you on what day I became taller. But there was a gradual, continual imperceptible growth. And then if people didn't see me for two years, they'd say, my, how you've grown. Oh, my, how you've aged. And that is a picture that if we are in constant communion with the Holy Spirit, spiritually we should be growing. It might be imperceptible on a day-by-day basis, but when somebody looks at you who hasn't seen you for a year, they'll say, you are not the person you used to be. What happened to you? And so when the Holy Spirit comes, whether it's that, in that gradual, imperceptible sense or in that sudden, experiential sense, his desire is to grow us, to transform us, to recreate us. Are new creations. We have been recreated. And I want to focus on three areas in which the Holy Spirit comes and transforms us and changes us. This isn't an exclusive list, but it's three points that I feel we need to understand as we walk with the Holy Spirit that Jesus wants to do in us and through us. And the first, and I've alliterated this so you can all remember it. The first is he changes us from failures to functional beings. From failure to function. So many of us hide our failures. 
And one of the dangers we have is preachers are so good at telling you the wonderful, powerful stories and testimonies, right? I, I can tell you all the stories of when I've been to Brazil and preached in conferences or when God's worked miracles through me or, or salvations, and those are great stories. But you very rarely hear preachers get up and tell you how many times they messed it up. And so we become afraid of failure. But here's the truth. The only people that have never failed are the people who've never done anything. And we've got to be a little bit more comfortable with failure. I don't mean sin. I'm not talking compromise. I'm saying we've got to be comfortable with the fact that if we dare to try the impossible, sometimes we will fail. I was in Mossel Bay doing, doing some training, and we called people out who'd never prophesied before. I said, right, now you're going to prophesy, and they all looked terrified. I said, don't worry. If this goes wrong, it's on me because I decided to do this. So, but if it goes right, I don't get any glory because it's obviously God. And as long as you're comfortable with that, you'll be all right. But too many of us allow past failures to define who we are now. I want to tell you man about a man who let that happen to him. And that man's name was Moses. Moses grew up in the household of Pharaoh. He had all the advantages. He had wealth. He had education. He had all those things. But he knew that he was a Hebrew by birth. And so he saw his people, he saw his fellow Hebrews being abused and in slavery. And part of him wanted to see his people delivered. And one day he was walking around and he saw a slave master whipping or abusing a slave. And he thought, this is my moment. I can be the deliverer of my people. Now what was Moses actually born for? What was his purpose for which he was born? to be the deliverer of his people. So he thought, he hadn't been called by God yet, but something in him, there was a desire to be the deliverer of his people. So he thinks, this is my moment. And he goes and he punches the, the, the slave master out and he kills the slave master. And suddenly he realizes, what have I done? And he runs away. And he goes from being part of Pharaoh's family with wealth, privilege in everything that that world could offer to being a sheep farmer in the desert. Now, I'm not... Is that the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove? Now, I'm not denigrating sheep farmers. But the, Israel, but the Egyptians did. Like, that was the lowest of, law, of the law to be a sheep farmer. And so Moses went from being a somebody to being a nobody. And he failed. He failed badly. Why did he fail? Because he was using his own skill, his own strength, his own understanding. He was using Moses to try and achieve the impossible. And he failed badly. And he was about 40 years old when that happened. So for 40 years, he'd walk around thinking he was a somebody. And then for the next 40 years, he spent learning he was a nobody. And then God appeared to him and called him. Now, you and I, if we 
encountered a burning bush and a voice coming out of it and God commissioning us, we'd just be so excited, wouldn't we? We'd just say, yes, Lord, whatever. Hmm. Or are we more like Moses than we think? And this is Moses. And we read about this in Exodus chapter 3. So God calls him. God supernaturally appears to him with fire and a voice in a burning bush. And he says, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to deliver my people. And Moses doesn't say it's about time. He starts with, but. But Moses said, who am I that I should go and bring the children out of Egypt? I am a nobody. I am defined by my past failures. My identity is intertwined with my past. And God being gracious said, I'll be with you and I'll give you signs. And then Moses says in verse 13, but what if, what if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, God sent me and they ask, what's his name? I don't know what to say. I don't have the theology. I don't have the training. I don't have a degree. I'm not qualified. What do I say? And God reveals himself. And still this isn't good enough for Moses. And Moses gives excuse after excuse after excuse. In chapter 4, verse 1. But what if they don't believe me? What if they don't listen to me? What if they say, the Lord did not appear to you? And to be honest, that's a good question. Could you imagine he gets home to his wife after this? And he says, you'll never believe what happened to me today. God spoke to me from a burning bush. Yeah, really? (laughs) No, no, he did. And he turned my stick into a snake. Where is it? Well, he turned it back again, you know. (laughs) I mean, this is a scary commission. We're all all excited because we know how the story ends. But when God calls you, you don't know how the story ends. Especially if you've tried once and failed before. At one point, God gets angry with Moses. But still, in verse 10 of chapter 4. But Moses said to the Lord again, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant. So either in the past or in the last two minutes. (laughs) You see, can you see his identity is stuck in his failure? In his past, I'm so speech and tongue, and God, we know, calls Aaron to help him, and God commissions him. But God encounters Moses, who spent 40 years learning he was a somebody, then another 40 years learning he was a nobody, and then had to learn that God takes nobodies and makes them somebody. And he gives Moses a job 
that is so impossible, it is doomed to failure unless God works supernaturally. What is the point of us only doing what is possible? What is the point of you only daring to try that which you are able to do? Then why do you need God? Why do we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit? We are called and commissioned not to simply bring good quality logical arguments to people about the nature of the gospel. I love apologetics, but it's not about clever arguments. We're called to raise the dead to life, both spiritually and physically. How many of you here desire to pray and see a dead person resurrected? Hands up. Okay. How many of you have actually prayed for a dead person? Okay. Well, that's why the vast majority of you have never seen it. If you've never done it, you'll never see it. I've prayed, for, I've prayed for a few dead people. I've not seen one rise yet. So I've failed a few times. But I'm going to keep doing it until it happens. And then you'll probably have to raise me from the dead because I'll probably be... <laughs> hey, I... It's not even a joke. I, I won't stop praying for sick people. Because I went through a season where every sick person I prayed for ended up dead or in the hospital. And I realized, how stupid are you? You're no more responsible for that than if they get healed. You know, I'm the world's worst evangelist. I spend 10 minutes with an atheist and I start backsliding. But God hasn't called me to what I'm good at. He's not called me to what's possible. He's not called me to the limits of my strength and my intellect. Thank goodness for that. He's called me to a lifestyle of the, lifestyle of the supernatural. And I have failed time and time and time and time again. How many chances has God given me? I couldn't tell you. Too many to count. But when I make myself available to him, he says he wants to use me. And he has a function for me. And I've told you this before. I'll tell you again. When I was a young man, I heard a preach on there's been one body, many parts. And I went home to figure out what part of the body I was. You know, am I the mouth? Maybe some people think so. Am I the heart? No, I'm definitely not the heart. Am I the feet of the gospel? No, because I... What, and I came to the conclusion I was the appendix. And the reason being is, you know, nobody quite sure what the appendix is all about. You know, it's this useless organ that nobody thinks about until it gives you trouble and then you remove it as quickly as possible. I'm not the appendix and neither are you. There is no appendix here. God has a function for you. And your function isn't the same as my function, but it's just as powerful and just as supernatural. And the people who often 
battle most with past failure is leaders. I was talking to somebody recently. And he'd led a congregation. And he was no longer leading a congregation. He said, I'm a failure. I said, no, you're not a failure. You failed in something. There's a difference. And if I can acknowledge that I failed, and acknowledge that God is bigger than my failure, then I still have a function that he has for me because God isn't done with me and he's not done with you. And he wants to take, take you from failure to function. The second way in which he wants, is, wants to change you and desires to transform you and recreate you and restore you and redefine you. Because it amazes me, the more people I speak to, and I'm sure Russell would agree with me when you're counseling people, how many people define themselves by what people have said over them or done to them in the past, rather than who they are in Christ. I was once speaking to a young boy in Brazil, and he was just broken. I had this prophetic word over him that people had, people had, um, that the devil had come through the words of people to destroy him. And these words were like fiery arrows to kill him. And he just began to break, and it was just parents and friends and family members had just destroyed his spirit with words. So you've got to understand, it's not your family, it's, it's the devil who's trying to kill you. And you've got to fight the devil. So I said, come on, start to rebuke the devil. And he's like, mm, and I'll, I said, no, come on, fight. Mm. Eventually I said, listen, just let's role play. I'm the devil. And I'm telling you, you're useless, and you're rubbish, and you're a failure. And he's like, oh, no, I'm not. I said, oh, I'm scared. I said, come on, fight me. And I started to push him a little bit. I said, come on, push me back. And he was sort of, in the end, he was sort of, in the end, I can't, I was pushing. And then he began to push me and said, stop it. I said, that's how you fight. That's how you treat these words. You don't allow these things to define who you are. You are who God says you are. And God wants to take you from famine to fruitfulness. From barrenness to life. From death to life. The Holy Spirit is in the business of bringing life where there was nothing. That's what he does. We see it in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created... And the earth was without form and void. There was nothing there. Darkness, void. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And this, this hovering Spirit, the Spirit of God, is one of the agents of creation and of life. And then thousands of years later, not billions, thousands of years later, the angel appears to Mary it says, you will be with ch child, even though you haven't been with a man. And then it says the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary. And the language is a very similar language. And life is placed in her womb where there was no life. And later we read that the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead 
the same Holy Spirit that gave life to Jesus when he was dead and buried in a tomb is alive and working in you. What? To create life where there was no life. To create fruit when there was nothing. You know, we do go through seasons of barrenness. We do go through... Who's ever been through a desert time? That's fine. You're called sometimes to go through a desert. You're just not called to live in the desert. But even in that, one of the most powerful scriptures, Moses is, is speaking to God. He's praying to God, and God is talking to him about the promised land. And God says, if you don't go with us, I'm not going to go. He says, I would rather remain in a desert with you than in a promised land without you. So even when we're in a desert, it isn't a time devoid of life. Does that make sense to you? But in the proper season, God will bring life even into a desert. The Old Testament is full of prophecies of the desert shall blossom. Life will exist where there was no life. Earlier this year, I was um, on a Zoom conference to, to Brazil. And uh, I preached. And then after the preach, they decided to have breakout rooms for discussion. Who's been to Brazil with me? You know how they can talk, right? These things are not quick and short. And because of the time difference, my preaching started at 1 a.m. By 2 a.m., because we're using interpreters, so the preach was quite long. 2 a.m., we're going to the breakout room, and then the guys want to talk. And I'm like, it's 2 a.m. It's like, can we get this over with? That's what I'm thinking. Out loud, I'm being all spiritual, but inside I'm... And it's all drawing to a close, and I'm thinking, thank you, Jesus. I just want to go to sleep. And then one person said, can I just say one thing? And I'm like, no, no, you can't say one thing. But I said, yeah, you can. He said, when you were here 12 months ago, you had a word about people, about couples who could not conceive and you prayed for them. He said, I want to introduce you to somebody. And they brought this little toddler onto the screen. See, it wasn't me. That's what Jesus does, physically and spiritually. He brings life where there's no life. He brings fruitfulness where there's barrenness. And some of us think that our ministry is barren. If your ministry is barren, dare to suggest possibly because the Spirit isn't being allowed to bring fruitfulness at the center of it. Yes, there are seasons. And seasons are necessary. A winter season is necessary for there to be life. Spring doesn't happen without winter because the seed dies in winter. So we can't surpass those more barren times, but it's a season, not a lifetime. Might be on the route, but it's not your destination. And Galatians 5 promises us that we will be fruitful as we're filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's just go to Galatians 5, talking about the fruit of the Spirit. And I want you to note something. It's fruit singular, not flute. flute. 
the flute of the Spirit. The flute of the Spirit is something completely different. The fruit of the Spirit, singular. In other words, it's one, it's, it's the character of the Spirit that manifests itself in these different ways. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. That is what will happen to us if we walk by the Spirit, if we allow the Spirit to work in us. There was a time, you probably not believe this, there was a time where I had the foulest temper you can imagine. I would lose my temper, I would see red, and I would just get violent. And it, when I was like 13, 14, and it didn't matter if I was violent against another 13-year-old or a 20-year-old. It just, and my parents said, if you don't get this sorted, it will destroy you. I don't think I'm like that anymore, by God's grace by the fruit of the Spirit. But if you are like you were 20 years ago, that's barrenness. If you are not more like Jesus today than you were a year ago, that's a sign of barrenness of the fruit of the Spirit. And that is not what the Lord wants for us. He wants the Holy Spirit to come and for us to be fruitful in these areas. Do you know why Jesus cursed the fig tree? One fig tree that he cursed because it had leaves on it. And even though it wasn't the season for figs, Israelites knew that where there were leaves, there were fruit. And so what this tree was doing was boasting of fruitfulness, but was actually barren. It's not about boasting of fruitfulness. It's not an appearance of fruitfulness. It's is there genuine fruit in our lives? And just as an aside, there's a little thing that I've noticed in the New Testament that faithfulness and fruitfulness generally go together. And the parable of the talents, when the servant brings more than he was given, God says, you've been faithful. And because you've been faithful, I will give you more. I've told you, I felt like I was the appendix. I had nothing to offer. You know, I, I used to honestly think this. Everybody's got something, right? Some people are, everybody's either clever or good-looking or sporty or charismatic or has lots of friends or like Joey, you're all of the above. <laughs> yeah, everybody's got one thing that's their thing. And I sat there going, I'm not clever. I'm not sporty. I'm not, I'm not gifted. I have nothing to offer. And maybe that wasn't the full truth, but the truth was I had very, very, very little to offer. But I discovered if I was faithful in bringing that very little instead of despising the very little, God would give me more. And fruitfulness comes about through faithfulness. But no matter how faithful you are, you can't be truly fruitful without the Holy Spirit. It's that partnership. So he wants to change, take, take you from famine to fruitfulness. The saddest thing is, many Christians are in a desert, dying of thirst, and don't even realize they're thirsty. And another tragedy is this, that many people who realize they're thirsty die 
because they've got a glass of water in their hands and they just don't drink it. In Revelation, it says, the spirit and the bride says, come. And whoever is thirsty, let him come. And let him come and drink. You can be thirsty. You can be dying of thirst. And the Holy Spirit is just ready to refresh you. But you've got to drink. And then the third way in which he wants to change us is from fear to faith. from being petrified, scared little mice, scared of persecution, scared of people, scared of loss, scared of failure, scared of whatever it is. And the Lord wants to take us to be a people of faith. In Daniel eleven thirty-two, those who know their God will do great exploits. And what is faith after all? The Hebrews 11 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And it goes on to tell us, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. So what kind of faith do we need? Just, just this, faith that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. Not faith for a Ferrari, not faith for a million dollars, but faith that he, has, he exists and he will reward, he will give what we need. And for, you know, to illustrate this, my, perhaps one of my favorite stories is Peter. Peter, who had faith in himself when Jesus said, you're all going to betray me. And Peter said, yeah, they might. Good friend he was, eh? <laughs> they might, but not me. And Jesus said to him, before the cock crows three times, before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. And so Jesus is arrested. And at first, remember, Peter's the gung-ho one with the sword. But as the night goes on, he becomes more and more intimidated, more and more fearful of his own arrest, of his own survival, of the opinions of others. It gets to the point where a slave girl says, aren't you one of those guys? And he can't even stand up for Jesus to a slave girl. He's afraid of a nobody in terms of society speak. He's absolutely petrified. He's a man consumed by fear. Fear for his life. Fear for his reputation. And as he denies Christ the third time, the cock crows, and the scriptures tell us that Jesus looked at him. I want to ask you, what do you think that Luke was? How do you think Jesus looked at him? I'm, I'm, I can't say for sure I wasn't there. I'll ask him one day. But I'm pretty sure it wasn't, I told you so. I'm pretty sure it wasn't anger. I'm pretty sure it wasn't disappointment. I'm pretty sure it was a look of love. I'm pretty sure it was a look of compassion. I'm pretty sure if he could have spoken, Jesus would have cried, Peter, remember what I taught you about repentance and forgiveness. Remember how much I love you. And, Jesus, and Peter runs away. But he's still a man consumed by fear, and fear takes many forms. And when he sat on the beach with Jesus, and Jesus says, 
do you love me? He's too afraid even to say, I love you in the same way. Because Jesus says, do you agape me? Do you love me to the point of death? And Peter says, you know that I love you like a brother. And he's so broken. He's now afraid of failure again. He's afraid of his... Of, and Jesus just restores him beautifully and brings him to a place of faith. Such faith, such conviction, that many years later as an old man, the Romans get hold of him and say, we're going to crucify you. And he says, no, I'm not worthy to be crucified in the manner of my Savior. And they crucify him upside down. And he stands strong till the end. This is the same Peter who wouldn't, who wouldn't answer a slave girl honestly. He denied Christ in front of a slave girl. And then a matter of weeks later, he's in front of thousands preaching the gospel. What's the major difference other than having spent some time with Jesus? What's the major difference? The Holy Spirit came upon him in power. And theologians argue what is what is proof of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And so some, some people say the proof of baptism of the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues. And I don't want to get in that. But what I will say is, as I read the New Testament, consistently what it says is, the Holy Spirit came upon people and they were filled with boldness, courage, faith. And the Lord wants to take us from fear to faith. Why do we not, express ourselves in worship fully sometimes. If we're honest, it's because we're afraid of what people will think. When we feel a prophetic word stirring, why do we not bring it? Sometimes. Because we're afraid of getting it wrong. Afraid of what people might think. Afraid of the elders going, no, we reject you, we're not going to use it. What, what are we afraid of? Why do we not bring things into light sometimes that we know we should? Because we're more afraid of rejection than we are afraid of that thing becoming a stronghold from which we can't escape. Why are we afraid of preaching the gospel in the streets and to our friends? Why are we afraid to speak out against injustice? Why are we... The Lord doesn't want us to be a people of fear. He wants us to be a people of faith. So there's three ways in which the Lord tonight wants to come and work in you and in me, in us, to continue the work of transformation. I love in Philippians... Paul writes to the Philippians, and in chapter 1 he says, I'm confident in this, that he who has begun a good work will continue to perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And the Lord has started a good work in most of you. But we can't be like the Galatian church who thought my salvation is supernatural, but now the way I work it out is through my own efforts. Now the process of sanctification is just as supernatural and just as dependent on the Holy Spirit as my salvation is, as my justification is. 
But in our journeys, many of us through tiredness, through losing focus on the prize, through compromise, for any number of reasons, we can find ourselves once again with that identity of failure, famine, fear. And the Lord, by his Holy Spirit, by a Holy Spirit encounter, by the power of the resurrection power of Jesus, that the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead, the Holy Spirit that took a formless and void universe and created such beauty and life out of it, the Holy Spirit that put life in, in, in Mary's womb, the Holy Spirit whom Jesus fully relied on to perform all of his miracles, that same Holy Spirit desires to come and do a work of transformation in us tonight. To change us, potentially, forever. So that we can say, I will, by the grace of God, never be the same again. And so I want to ask tonight, if you know that you have allowed an ident- past failure recent or not so recent you've allowed failure to inform your identity and your actions today if you know that you've encamped in a barren place where you've been attempting to do this thing without walking in step with the spirit without an intimacy, without a relationship if you find yourself in a barren, fruitless, empty place of famine, or if you've allowed fear to grab your heart and cause you to compromise, cause you not to walk in the calling, walk in obedience to the Lord, I want to ask you to respond to him tonight. And for those of you here, maybe... You're in church for the first time. Maybe you're hearing about Jesus for the first time. Maybe you've been doing church your whole life. But one area in which the Holy Spirit takes us from famine to fruitfulness or death to life is from being spiritually spiritually dead to spiritually alive. From being a stranger to being a friend of Christ. To being a son of God or a daughter of God. From going from a meaningless existence to an existence with a purpose that lasts through eternity. If the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you tonight in any of those three areas, failure, famine, or fear, if you've allowed those things to shape you, to govern you, to form your identity, shape your actions and your attitudes, today's the day to say, no, no longer. The Holy Spirit is going to come and he's going to shape me and I'm going to walk with a function in fruitfulness and in faith. Asking you if that's you, just stand where you are. I'd love to, to pray for you, just love to minister to you.
You don't have to come to the front, but if you want to come to the front, that's also cool. I want you, even tonight, even if you stood, you know, that's the first thing of, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep in step with the Spirit now, not with my own comfort or my own reputation. So I want you to just flow with what you feel the Holy Spirit is saying to you. You can come to the front, you can stand where you are, you can kneel. And I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge you here tonight, knowing this. There's only one man who's ever lived who never failed, and that was you. But you know, you know what it's like to go through a desert. You know what it's like to be racked with temptation and opposition. You can empathize with every single thing we're going through. And I thank you that you not only come and comfort us, but you do so much more than that. Because you take our very identity and hide it in yourself and make us more like you. And I thank you that you're raising us up to be a people, not who live in a place of famine, not who live with an identity of failure, not a people who live in fear. But you sent your Holy Spirit to us to fill us, to empower us, to encourage us, to guide us in all truth and to make us more like you and to make us a fruitful people. And your desire for us is that we would be a people of faith, a people of fruitfulness, and a people who understand we have a function, we have a purpose. And that you've gifted each and every one of us to play our part in your kingdom. Come Holy Spirit right now upon each and every one of these people as they've responded in obedience to you. Come fill them. Come refresh, restore, recreate, redefine. Recommission each and every one as we all move forward in the things of the kingdom and we all move forward to becoming more like you. Thank you, Jesus.